Hello and welcome to Scripture Untangle, the podcast by the Canadian Bible Society. This is episode four and we are interviewing Dr. Beth Green today. Dr. Beth will be interviewed by Andrew Allerton and I will be your guide for this episode. My name is Joanna LaFleur and I'm a friend of the Canadian Bible Society. Let me tell you a little bit about Beth Green. Dr. Beth Green is the Provost and Chief Academic Officer of Tyndale University, Canada's largest private Christian university. Dr. Green earned her doctorate in philosophy from Oxford University in England, funded by a prestigious economic and research council scholarship. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts and also a graduate of the University of Cambridge and the University of London. This is a well-educated woman. She's sought after in her consultancy work and it takes her worldwide as she advises on the effectiveness and approaches to measurement and professional development of pedagogy in the religious school sector. What this means is she helps us think about how we learn and how we educate the next generation of Christian leaders. She joined Tyndale after four years as the program director of CARDIS, which is a Canadian faith-based think tank, and she focused her work there on policy and education. So on this episode of the podcast, Andrew Allerton is talking to her about how we learn and how we think about scripture. We're talking about the history of how we learned the Bible and how the entire education system we live in in the West was developed out of the church and the reading of scripture. We're also talking with Dr. Beth about how the Bible points us to Jesus, how as we grow, it feels like God grows as he enlarges in the text as we read it. She also addresses some false assumptions of what people think about the Bible and how people learn and know about the Bible. So you're going to love this conversation with Beth Green. Now, if you're learning about the Bible, just like we all are, if you're listening to this podcast, I want to invite you to consider the Bible course. Whether you're a seasoned Bible reader or just starting on your journey, the Bible course offers a superb overview of the world's best-selling book. This eight-session course will help you grow in your understanding of the Bible. And using a unique storyline, the Bible course shows how key events, books, and characters all fit together. You can use this in person or in digital gatherings. It really can be used anywhere. You can watch the first session for free and review the accompanying course guide. Go to biblecourse.ca to learn more. That's biblecourse.ca, and the link will be down in the show notes. All right, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Beth Green, interviewed by Andrew Allerton. You're listening to Scripture Untangled, a podcast by the Canadian Bible Society. We know that the Bible can feel overwhelming, confusing, or hard to believe. Scripture Untangled brings you interviews with culture leaders, leaders in ministry, and Bible thinkers to help you be inspired to dive into the Bible and understand it. Visit BibleSociety.ca for more resources. Well, delighted today to be joined by Dr. Beth Green. Beth, welcome to this uh, podcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's really great to be here, Andrew. Now, you have that um, same British accent that I have, but you're the other side of the pond, right? Where are you talking to us from today? So I'm in my office at Tyndale University, which is in uh, North York, part of the uh, city of Toronto, as they say here. Um, That's in Ontario, what we call the, the greater Toronto area. So I'm not far from but can't see the beautiful Lake Ontario that, mm. that Toronto is on the side of. Yeah. Lovely. Lovely. Sounds beautiful. Now, 
but out, by, out of interest um, in Canada, do you get a bit of kudos from a British accent? Do they think that it's a cute thing, an intelligent thing, and that you're related to the Queen, or, or is it not like Absolutely. that? Absolutely. In fact, I attribute my entire career success this mm. side of the Atlantic yes. to the accent. People think you're cleverer than you really are, posher than you really are, more beautiful than you really are. It totally works. <laughs> oh, I've got to, I've got to relocate. I need all those things. Um, I recommend space. it. Yeah, brilliant. Now, Beth, um, you're joining us today. We're talking particularly about the Bible and our own journey with it um, and then how it's informed our careers and our approach to culture and all sorts. But um, just before we dive into that, just give us a bit of a heads up in terms of, you know, what what um, what do you do? What's, what's your area of expertise? What's your vocation? What's your research focus? A little bit of a snapshot of Beth Green. Thank you. And thanks for asking me um, and using the word vocation, because I do see what I'm doing uh, as, as, as a vocation, as a calling from God. Um, I'm the provost at Tyndale University, um, which is not enlightening, is it? Provost is an old medieval <laughs> word. It basically means just kind of like head of a college or it used to mean cathedral chapter also used to mean keeper of prison which isn't far away from some of the interactions I have with faculty and, and I'm students sure, I'm sometimes. sure the students feel that's <laughs> under it, yeah. <laughs> but basically kind of number two to the president and mm-hmm. uh, it, it's the academic life of the university that is is my responsibility but I have spent a lifetime um, in school and university as an educator and I think of myself as a um as a teacher always my parents were teachers and I kind of say that means you'll either be one or you'll run a mile in the other direction so my brother ran a mile in the other direction I became a history teacher and my whole kind of um career vocation to use that word again has been about exploring well if I believe that people are made in the image of God and they're spiritual beings, what difference is that going to make to the way um, we do, you know, I teach, we do teaching and learning. And I've sort of I taught in secondary schools in the UK um, and now I'm, I train teachers for a bit and now I'm, um, and now I'm in um, a, a university. And I think one of the things I should also say that's that's a bit different in Canada to the um, the context in in Britain is that in North America we have um, a really strong sector of private universities that are Christian, so that really set out to teach or to integrate faith and learning into the higher education um, curriculum. Now in Britain, we've got I mean our, our medieval universities began as colleges and uh, for theological training and thinking and um but we don't have um anymore uh the same uh close connections um in the institutions that that we once had so but that's more common over here and to some degree the liberal arts sort of the 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 subjects are broader in their range they stay broader for longer is that right just just tease out because i know i mean it's interesting you mentioned um the origins of the universities way back to charlemagne and others this this sort of priority of christian uh the, the christian priority of teaching and education just speak to that just speak to that as well just for a moment because it's it's a distinctive mark of of christianity and to some degree yeah, that's right. So the first universities were, uh, were monastic. So people didn't just learn together. Uh, they lived together. Um, and their 
whole day was structured around worship and the 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 services um, of daily office and um, I think one of the things that also um, we sometimes forget is that um, some of those um, monastic um, communities um, were uh, for women as well and in those contexts it was one of the only contexts women could learn in the Middle Ages. But, um, you know, we had women leading and teaching in, in monastic community as well. And I think, um, yeah, the, the liberal arts tradition um, in, in North America um, has grown out of that sense that you need to put together a, a breadth of knowledge from the dis- different disciplines um, and that it's worth reading literature, it's worth um, being grounded in philosophy and history and mathematics and not specialising too soon um, to give you that um, broader and deeper grasp of what knowledge is. So when I got here and people asked me, you know, about what I majored in at university, I really didn't understand what they were talking about because I went to university and I read history. Mm. Um, And I Mm. thought, wow, it would have been cool not to have had to choose (laughs) that early on. Um, And to have a much broader grounding um, across the disciplines. And that comes from, um, yeah, the medieval structure of learning. Mm. And interestingly, it was, am I right that it was only once you'd become something of a master in the liberal arts that you were almost ready to study theology, right? It was almost like they were foundation laying. And so theology, which I think is fascinating because the Christian, the Christian history has been accused of all sorts of things in regards to the destruction of texts. Um, the I think, but Library in Alexandria, the you know the the way that um, Christians were so, were supposed to have destroyed classical antiquity texts because they didn't want anything but the Bible. But actually, I mean, it's that's not quite true. No, <laughs> we've got a reputation for slashing and burning, and I mean, it's not. Mm completely undeserved I'm afraid um, but it is also the case that um, lots of the lots of the things that we prize about our modern education system um, is rooted in the the kind of the, the judeo-christian values um, and um, the desire to um, particularly in in the Reformation um, the desire to let everybody have access to God's word and explore it for themselves. Um, and so it's because of the church that literacy grew, um, in, in, um, in what was then seen as the model, modern world. And I guess we're talking mostly about the, the cultural West. Um, but it, those things, um, grew, um, side by side. So, yeah. Mm. Very good. I mean, I've slightly jumped the gun, but that's because you're interesting. <laughs> I wasn't, I didn't mean to that's go into all of that straight off. Which is a good thing because we're on a podcast together. <laughs> I've got so many questions that spark off what you've just said, but let me just circle back around to you a bit more about yourself first, and then we'll get, we'll get back to all of that. Just in terms of your own journey, particularly um, with the Bible and how you've come to understand it, the educational experiences and, and personal experiences you've had, just share a bit about you know, how you've got to where you are with, with scripture. Yeah. So I, I've always really loved the Bible. Um, but I think the way that I've read it and the way that I've engaged with it has definitely changed over time, which would you, which you would expect, right? Different phases of our life. I've lived in different country now. Um, but it began, I just, I, I've always been a bookworm, right? And I've always loved to read a bit of an armchair traveler. I could read before I went to 
to to school um and i was uh raised in a in a christian home so my parents um uh my parents went to church and they also started a school and i was one of the very first pupils at that that christian school but um the thing I loved first were the great adventure stories. So I had these little arc books, they were called. I'm a child of the mm-hmm. 80s. And they took like the stories of Esther and Ruth and Daniel. Um, they had great illustrations and, 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 and I just loved them. I got lost in them as adventures. But I suppose the benefit that I had was that because, um, because my parents were teachers, because they loved Jesus, they loved the Bible themselves. Um, they taught me how to hang those stories together. They taught me that there was a chronology. They taught me that there was a, a, a mm. kind of more sweeping narrative going on here. So I wasn't just left with Sunday school pick and mix. As I grew up, mm. I guess I started to put, put the stories together. But, um, as I was saying, um, how we engage with the Bible changes. And so I have at different phases of my life studied it in a more academic sense. You know, it's been, I've, I've used um, biblical texts as a sort of framework for, you know, how am I going to teach um, the subject of history to kids in, to kids in school? Like, how am I going to teach about King Henry VIII and all his wives? And if I've got Catholic students in my class, as well as Protestant students, because I worked in church schools, like, what's that going to feel like to them? So that mm. changed the way I thought about the Bible, because I had to think about how people in different contexts and different traditions to me read it and and understood it or whether they even knew it at all and a lot of the kids I was teaching hadn't had the background I had and didn't know what it said and then as an academic I started reading it differently as well like I went to university and began to realize that some people thought um some people were very critical of it some people thought it was you know, useful if you wanted to be able to understand Shakespeare and all that, but, you know, mm. not relevant to today. So then I had to think, well, how am I going to defend how important it is to me? That's another way of reading it. And the last example I'll give you is, um, since I've been in Canada, I've been, um, worshiping at an, uh, an Anglican church. I grew up in, um, uh, uh, I didn't grow up in that tradition. I grew up in an independent, um, kind of church that my parents had been involved with starting do its own thing <laughs> broadly non-conformist if we're going to use that that language and in the anglican church the bible is read but it's read liturgically and 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 so um i've really enjoyed that and appreciated that but it's like even after seven years it's still brand new this idea of how it shapes our worship services and how it shapes mm. communion and like morning prayers so back to that monastic tradition mm. So my answer is that my personal journey with the Bible has been, I would say, a really positive one, but it's really changed. I've engaged with it and read it in loads and loads of different ways. Mm. That's brilliant. Yeah, you're you're sparking another 19 questions from me because I think, I mean, I think that's because I think that sense of journey, that sense that our relationship with the Bible needs to mature and change as we do. I, I mean, just speak to that for a moment, because it seems to me at times, certainly in the context I'm in, that Whereas with uh, educational process and pathways in the cultural or secular, secular context, they're very well thought through, you know, they're age appropriate, they're very well thought through. There's this kind of pathway of development that our children are expected to go on to mature and grow from concrete to abstract thinking, all these other things. And it seems to me at times that in the church, we've become a bit sloppy about our version of that pathway of maturity, particularly with regards to the Bible. And, and 
all the statistics suggest we're reaping the whirlwind there because we end up with a, a generation who haven't really moved beyond a sort of fairly childlike understanding of the Bible, going to university, and then it all falls apart. Um, how much do you recognise that problem, and how much have you thought through some of the, the solutions, if so, or, or, or the responses? Mm-hmm. I do recognise that problem. I'm also thinking it's not a new one, because um, Paul, in some of his letters, gets frustrated and says, you haven't moved mm. on, right, from the, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> from okay. the milk to the meat. Um but I, I do think you're absolutely right. And um, C.S. Lewis has this wonderful analogy in his story written for children um, uh, about Narnia. I think it's the second book, Prince Caspian. One of the characters, Lucy, goes back to this magical land and meets um, and meets uh, the lion Aslan. And and she's met him before uh, on a previous journey. But what she notices this time is he's bigger. And she's really mm. struggling to get her head around why has he changed? And, and there's this beautiful conversation between Lucy and Aslan about how he grows as she does, as her comprehension, as she's finding out more about this amazing world of Narnia. So, you know, kind of Aslan mm. grows, um, grows as well. And I do think that's what C.S. Lewis is trying to say there is that as you, as you get to know Jesus, as you explore, and I think the, the purpose of the Bible, is to, t- is to point us to Jesus, is to explain who Jesus is. As we explore Jesus and his world, his kingdom, like we mm. grow and then he grows. Like our experience of him in the text enlarges at the same rate. At least that's been, that's been my experience. And I think we've got to build, we've got to take account of how people actually learn. Um, um, I think you're right. And I think in the church, Maybe we make a couple of um, false assumptions. Um, I think we sometimes assume people have read more than they've read. Because mm-hmm. for my generation, I'm Generation X, it was still pretty common to go to Sunday school and actually, you know, at least have some of the stories of the Bible read to you. That's not the experience of the vast majority of the population in Canada or the UK anymore, even if they're in a church school. So I'm in my role Mm -hmm. here having to help people understand that even our students who are coming from schools where they've been taught from a Christian perspective may not have actually spent, kind of if you count up the hours, that much time reading the Bible and sorting out where the stories go in order, like just mustn't take for granted that people have ever done that Mm. I think the other assumption that we make is that um, if we just tell people things then they'll know it so if we just tell them what it it says and if we tell them what it means bingo job done and any teacher will tell you that's like the least effective way (laughs) of getting anybody to learn anything like you have to really wrestle with it some kids need mm. to do really physical and practical things. Like some people can't remember something unless they've drawn it, right? Um, mm. um, we need structure. We need rhythms. We need to to do repetition. We need to keep going back to things. And then the second time we look at it, it'll be, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be more um, perhaps in depth. We have to keep, keep revisiting things. And it's really interesting. If you think about, we were talking about, um, 
the monastic tradition, and I was talking mm. about that, the Anglican liturgy, that's seen perhaps as a little, you know, outdated today. But what it is, is a structure where you regularly read through the Bible mm-hmm. and you keep mm. revisiting it and it keeps re- re-speaking its stories and its truths about who God is, who Jesus is to you, you know, on Sundays when you feel great and on Sundays when you're in the blues. And we, we, mm. we have, I think we, that's another assumption. We forget that we're embodied physical beings going through stuff. And sometimes that stuff mm. will make us excited about the stories in the Bible. And sometimes it will really challenge whether or not we think that they are trustworthy and true. Um, and so, um, I think my beef has always been that theologians could learn a lot from teachers <laughs> in terms of helping yeah. people to think through how they actually learn. And also teachers probably need to know, Christian teachers certainly need maybe a bit more theology. Because if you don't know the yeah. stories either, <laughs> how can you teach mm. them? Yeah, yeah. And particularly perhaps in the Western tradition that we would be part of, that there is a, a, a more propositional approach, isn't there, to... Um, to the faith, which has so many strengths, um, way right back to Augustine and others, has so many strengths, but also some challenges, um, challenges as well. It's interesting. I'm, I'm again, I'm picking up on about five things there. Uh, one of them is you mentioned Sunday school, and um, not only are less less and less children being raised in a context where they would attend something like Sunday school, but it's worth noting as a historical fact, isn't it, that Sunday school was at one time for for adults yes. as well. And I know there'll be some churches in North America, but my understanding is a, d- a dwindling number who still have some kind of class context for adults. Yes. But I just think it's really important to note that because I remember being in a uh, context in North Wales, actually, where I spent a year out and I remember meeting an adult and she was in a in a rush. And I said, where are you going? She said, I'm going to Sunday school. And she didn't have any children with her. And I laughed. I thought, you know, that's Adults don't go to mm-hmm. Sunday school, but mm-hmm. there was just that in 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 Wales. Um, actually, literacy rates rocketed, and um, mm-hmm. the Queen of Sweden actually came over to Wales at one point to learn from the Welsh context as to how they changed literacy rates. And the, and what she understood was they'd done it through effectively biblical education. Um, so all that to say, you know, the fact that we think that there's someone like myself thinks it's a joke that an adult would go to Sunday school, says a lot about the fact that we've lost that sense that you're a lifelong learner, you're on a journey that never ends. I love this C.S. Lewis analogy of Aslan will just become bigger the more you grow. Um, Yeah. So do you have any sort of insights then on how could we recover? And it seems to me it's, it's, it's a really need of the hour because the Western church is going into increasingly into an exile context, you know, spiritually speaking, We need to recover a sense that we are um, on a life journey with the Bible, rather than a, a, that, rather than it being a, a priority just for children. Any any insights on that and how we might recover something of that culture? Um, I don't know how profound this will be. I've got a couple of uh, a couple of different reflections uh, on on what you just said there. One of the things I was thinking about that example you gave of the lady who was going to to the the adult Sunday school. Um, particularly in the context of, of, of Wales, where, um, uh, we know that the Welsh revivals were really important, not mm. just, I mean, not just in terms of, um, the spirituality of the people and, and, and the faith growing, but yeah, in actually educating people who were, um, mm. you know, who were, 
uh, illiterate, impoverished. And there are some mm. negative aspects to that as well, like not being able to speak your own language. And well, we can talk about that <laughs> another time. Um, but I'm thinking about the fact that when she, well, when that lady probably went to that um, adult Sunday school, she would have been in community because working mm. class communities in Wales, everybody knew one another. There were lots of relationships. People didn't travel the way that they uh, that they do today and those kinds of rhythms and connections are also really important in the context of learning they can make it harder but they can also be a you know they can also be a true and a real blessing we're all we're all experiencing a lot of um disconnection we were anyway before i'm mm. going to say the c mm. word the covid pandemic came um and the irony is that through the internet, we can connect if we wanted to, to more lectures, more teaching, more videos about the Bible. But it's still more meaningful if you go to Sunday school, whether it's adult or children, with a group of people and you actually have some dialogue and it's regularly the same group of people as learning happens within both the context of community and so that it's also happening in the context of worship. So I think learning, relationship, community are all really, really important. And people are hungry for that. And I think that's one of the things that um, we, the church could, could, could hold out and offer. And I think sometimes we're a bit intimidated because we think mm. we need all the, you know, it's got to be really slick production and we need all the whiz and bangs. And yeah. actually, um, if you just have some, some really great food if you set the table <laughs> and invite people mm. to come and if you learn how to facilitate discussions well and do that regularly it's all you need mm. yeah very good and actually the it's the relationships that keeps people coming isn't it not the you know i'm i'm like yourself i'm a communicator preacher lecturer whatever and we like to think it's um it's the three points that we've put together and how well they join but it's so often it's the relationships isn't it and just just speak a bit more to that then so you know you're thinking as a from a from the point of view of pedagogy that is that word just means really i suppose how how to help people learn you're thinking from that point of view and that's your area of research if you were to give a few top tips to those who want to encourage a learning culture how do you how do you use that phrase just then set the table mm -hmm. you know create the context mm -hmm. in which learning flourishes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any what from your research? Yep. What um, what have you gleaned on that? Yeah. So um, one thing I just want to say about the word pedagogy. It sounds really fancy, but one of the things that I found out from um, my um, friend and mentor, uh, Dr. John Short, who wrote a really good book called The Bible and the Task of Teaching. And sadly, John passed away just a couple of weeks ago. But he was a, a, a leader in in this area. He's the one who told me that. The word pedagogy comes from the French pedagogues, which is the house, that was what they called the house where the monks and students lived together in Paris to learn. So I just think it's really mm. fascinating that the word pedagogy, like how we learn together, actually comes from that context of hospitality, of living together um, in relationship and doing all of life together, not just the academic -y bits. But in terms of, in terms of, of, of top, oh, top tips, um, so I just before you just before you comment on that, because what you just said there, I mean, most obviously, of course, that's the that's the Jesus school model as well, isn't it? And you know, as you say it, you just think, gosh, there's nothing new under the sun yeah. here, is there? That, you know that he, that Hebraic yeah. or he, Hebrew culture. Yeah. 
the rabbi. Yeah. Jesus was known as the teacher, yeah. but not in the classroom sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. Gather your group, your group together and walk, walk together, do life, do life together. Um, and, um, I think one of the other things that's really interesting about the rabbinic tradition is that, um, their learning is much more, um, I want to, it's much more question based. So posh word for it is dialogical, right? But like you are allowed to ask questions and you're allowed to mm. wrestle with the text. And, um, sometimes the rabbi won't answer your question with a solution, but with another question. Like Jesus mm. is really famous for doing that, isn't he? Somebody will ask him a question and he'll reply. He'll either throw the question back to them or he'll tell a story that might feel a bit tangential and it so it means that you have to actually grapple and wrestle with it and I think one of the things that was really important for me growing up and which I began to see as I started teaching young people was that um you people need to feel free to bring their questions and um in some church contexts the bible has reached such a sort of such a status that it's like you can't ask any questions about it otherwise you know people think you are being difficult or challenging or unfaithful and yet um wrestling with questions is a I think that's really really important and that means we have to learn how to disagree with each other well and deal with conflict well which is something in our current western cultural context we're really really uncomfortable with and we prefer we prefer to make safe worlds where nobody threatens and challenges our beliefs but if you're gonna if you're gonna sit down with somebody who doesn't know as much as you do or knows more about something than you do your default position needs to be curiosity not defensiveness um and i have really been learning <laughs> a lot about that um a lot about that recently um because um and again i'm just going to share something from my own personal story if that's okay mm. but yeah, um do. my husband is from cuba and his first language is not english it is spanish and i don't speak spanish i i speak well duolingo <laughs> it's kind of the first couple of lessons on the app is like where i am at the moment and so um one of the things i found so we we're in a relationship that is of love and it's deep and we want to explore things together but I am so defensive when I cannot make myself understood. And, and he's like, be curious with me. Remember that I'm having to trans, you know, process everything in it. I have a different language. I've grown up with a different set of assumptions. And I thought I was good at difficult conversations and, and I thought I was open to accept questions. It's actually really, really hard. Mm. Mm. <laughs> But that that defensive posture has cost us a lot, yes, right? In has. terms of people's people feeling that unless you agree, you're in the wrong room. Um, and I think that costs us a huge amount with our young people, especially, doesn't it? Because they have to be able to ask their questions they in do. the safe environment yeah. if they're going to have any hope of yeah. feeling like they yeah. have answers in the yeah. challenging That's environment right. of the university yeah. or, or wherever yeah. it is that they yeah. they, they head on to. Um, so we. So you meant. I was oh, sorry, just going to say, go, go, go. at Tyndale, um, we talk a lot about creating brave spaces rather than safe spaces, because safe spaces can imply that 
I mean, I do think safety is really important and there has to be high levels of trust for people to get into really um, in-depth de- in arguments. And, and I should say Tyndale is interdenominational. So we've got people here with um, really different uh, theological beliefs because they come from, from different Christian traditions. And I kind of think if we can't make it work, exploring the Bible together, talking about the um, implications for life and learning, mm. like <laughs> How can we ever expect anyone to do it? Um, but a brave space is, is intentional because we don't want to buy into the idea that you, that there are some things you should just cancel out if you don't like them mm-hmm. and you don't want to hear them. That's not to say we would tolerate, you know, unacceptable, immoral or, you know, just behavior that is out, out of order and inhospitable. That's not what we're talking about, but just superficial relationship just Hmm. you know here are the here are the kind of this is what this is what we think you should know let's not explore context let's not explore why that's not a safe space or a brave space either so yeah very good so i like that so i'm hearing community that's one emphasis if you want to be creating a culture of learning that's flourishing it's got to be done in community it's got to be with questions that in the brave space could you say something about, particularly now with reference to the Bible, because you kind of alluded to it earlier that when you're teaching, you know, in a vocation context, you're teaching Henry VIII uh, as, a, as a historian, the Bible informs that. Just, I think for me, one of the things, you know, I learned Latin badly because I just never understood why I, why I was doing it. You know, it's almost like, where's this going? No one, you know, you all look, I mean, looking back, I, I could have done with it, yeah. but um but for my later years, but as it turns out, um, at the time, no one explains to you. And I, and I just get this feeling that part of our challenge with the Bible in the church is that we're not sometimes helping people join the dots between, you know, the, the big why question, really, you know, it's all good. Um, but why will this help me do my life? Right. Um, yeah. how have you, how have you joined the dots between the Bible and your vocation as a, as a educator? I think. I was kind of forced to join the dots because I was really dissatisfied with the story of education that I was, that I was being told. Um, you know, when I went to university, um, and I went to a very posh medieval (laughs) university, but it was still all about, um, you know, what job are you going to do when you leave? And it, Mm -hmm. or it was about, because you're at this university, you're going to make the right friends and connections so that you can get a fab job in the city or a really well-paid professional, you know. And I was just, I didn't buy it. And I thought, I've got all these big, like, why questions. And I really thought that university was going to be the place where, you know, I could hang out and explore them. So I was, I was kind of a, I was kind of disappointed and frustrated that I felt like the story that was being told about, this is about education rather than the Bible, but um, I'll get there in a minute, um, was too small. And so then um, I kind of um, stumbled into a couple of different Christian traditions where the not only the Bible was really, uh, the Bible story was really um, loved and understood and prized, but so was education. So I found that mm. um, when I was teaching at a, um, a Catholic girls' school um, and um, kind of discovered 
Catholic social teaching and realized that, yeah, the Bible has something to say about ethics and justice. And, um, uh, and then I also stumbled across, um, things from, um, the, the Dutch reformed, uh, kind of school, which, um, uh, has always had this really, yeah, be a scholar, be a philosopher, be a teacher of German, be a teacher of maths and enrich it and do it because it's a form like you studying and you learning is itself a form of worship. It's rolling your sleeves up and getting stuck, stuck into God's world. And I'd always had education in the Bible in two separate boxes. So it was fab to be able to think, okay, so the things that I'm good at, which is basically reading and <laughs> being introverted. <laughs> um, and this kind of, uh, this curiosity and this desire to know, this is, I can do this as my way of following Jesus. And uh, I, so I joined the dots because I was frustrated that my church life and reading the Bible seemed somehow separate from, you know, Monday to Friday, trying to get kids in, interested in Miss, why have I got to learn about the past? It's not, I mean, yeah. if I'd had a pound yeah. for every time a child said that yeah, to me. Yeah. I'd have, yeah. So I'd had to think about it in, in, in relation to history. Okay. So how do you get kids who are really not interested last thing, you know, year nine, last thing on a Friday afternoon to understand that, you know, when they're learning about the explorers like Vasco, Vasco da Gama or when they're learning about, um, the, the, the Treaty of Versailles, that the shaping of the world they're in now, traces back to that right and if they're going to understand themselves then so i think it was all part of the same quest for me joining those dots Mm. yeah brilliant and actually i love the way you put it that the story wasn't big enough and i think that's that's the problem with so you know it's when we understand the grand narrative the big story of 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 scripture god's story and then we frame every one of the stories we're involved in within that larger story, the story of education, the story of science, the story of medicine, the story of the economy, all those stories are part are, are housed within this yeah. larger story of why we're yeah. here and why these things matter. And yeah. it's, it's again, it's that why thing, isn't it? You know, if you, someone just explains the why, then you've got the energy and the motivation for whatever the, the challenge may be. So Beth, we need to wrap up, but um, I'm hearing community doing, doing it together. I'm hearing, um, that kind of brave space, the, the the ability to question, allow people to question. I'm hearing joining the dots. Is there any other final pearl of wisdom you'd have for those who are listening and thinking, you know, I want to feel like the Bible is a more meaningful journey for me, not just something in my childhood, but something I'm advancing into. Any final wisdom from you? Um, I think what we haven't talked about so much, which I think is perhaps important, is also to help people um it's coming back to this asking questions is okay because I also think um, the you have to expect that you as you read the Bible and as you put your life in the context of the, the Bible story, there are things that you might not get answers about or that mm-hmm. you will struggle with or that you feel the Bible's not speaking to satisfactorily and then what do you do with that and if you've been taught that the Bible is like an instruction manual this is back to what you were saying earlier about propositional truth and it's supposed to have an answer for something and then it doesn't in in relation to whatever it is you're facing or 
you did everything right and still your marriage fell apart or you lost mm. your job mm. or your kids are not interested in the Bible or, you know, whatever it mm. is. Like, um, you, what, what do you do then? Um, and again, that was something that, um, I have had to rest, th- wrestle through personally. And I keep going back to, well, what's the Bible for? Who, who is it about? It is about Jesus. It's not about, mm. um, here is the roadmap so that Beth can <laughs> do everything right <laughs> and have a brilliant career and be a great evangelist. Mm. Like it's about Jesus. And mm. even when, Jesus is silent. Even when there isn't an answer, I've still got somewhere to go. Um, in, in, in just those regular rhythms <laughs> and keeping bringing the question. And there are so many characters in the Bible, um, who have to do that. Um, mm. um, and the lit, the wisdom literature of the Bible, I'm thinking particularly about the encounters mm. of Job. Um, I've been in times and spaces where, um, my faith hasn't necessarily made sense or it hasn't given me the answer I was looking for in, in the face of, you know, tragedy and grief. Um, and I'm still here. I'm still reading it and I'm still showing up to church. Well, it's, um, it's because in the Jesus story, there is, I often talk about the fact because we've, we've just, it, it, we've just come the other side of Easter in the, in the liturgical calendar. Mm. And in the Anglican church last Sunday was low Sunday where you, there's not so much of the pageantry and you read the story Mm. of Thomas kind of like, well, you know, I've got to see it to believe it. And what always strikes me about that story, A, I don't think Thomas was exceptional. I think I'd have been exactly the same. (laughs) I'd have been like, what? He's back. But also what Jesus does is shows the you know, the scars and the risen Jesus, mm. that the risen Jesus bears scars says mm. to me that the hurt, the brokenness, the things that there aren't answers for don't add up, um, to an insurmountable obstacle that says the Bible isn't true. Mm. Yeah. Lovely. I remember reading something by Thomas Aquinas saying those scars are, are scars of hope and, um, I just think that's such a beautiful thought to finish on, isn't it? That whatever, because ultimately that's for all of us and for our listeners, that's that's the reality of life in this fallen, broken world yep. is it hurts sometimes yep. and we have mysteries yep. um, and riddles we cannot solve. But Jesus Christ is the centre of scripture and the one in whom we find hope. In his scars, there's hope. Dr. Beth Green, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. I've loved it. I hope our listeners have too. I think they will. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Angie. Thanks for listening to Scripture Untangled, brought to you by the Canadian Bible Society. If you liked today's conversation, please subscribe to hear more. You can share this episode with a friend, post on social media, or rate this podcast so that more people can find it. The Canadian Bible Society is all about the Bible in the hands of a person where and when it is most needed, in the language closest to that person's heart, and in a format easy for them to use with help to understand it for themselves. Visit biblesociety.ca for more resources for you, your family, and your community.